Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Before we get started, I just... Uh... I don't know about you, but my, this week, my, uh, my heart's been aching. Uh, it's been broken. Um, for the, those that are in Afghanistan, um, for our Christian brothers and sisters, for, for women, um, for so many that um, are, are suffering at the, the hands of just uh, evil personified. Um, and uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with that, that emotion. I don't know what to do with that, that heartache. Um, I, was, I was drawn to Esther. And if you've read the book of Esther, uh, if not, it's a short read. It's worth it. Um, but you'll find that in the Old Testament. And Esther finds herself in a position to, to have the ear of the king. She's, a, she's the queen. And um, she is of the Jewish people. And uh, by the hand of this guy named Haman... All the, the genocide is going to happen to the Jewish people. They didn't know her real name is not Esther, it's Hadessa. And uh, so she is, is sitting in the, the palace with the ear of the king. And, and, uh, but she's afraid. Like if I approach the king uninvited, like it's, it means death to me. If I don't, it's death to my people. So she calls the people to pray. And she calls the people to, to fast. And so that's, that's really what I want to um, encourage and, and, and challenge us this week. That we'd find ourselves praying, would you join me tomorrow in fasting for the people that are in Afghanistan that, that are, are finding themselves in, in uh, dire straits? Uh, There's a, a king, Jehoshaphat, that uh, surrounded by armies, he, he at the same time, he didn't know what to say, he didn't know what to do, he didn't know what to pray. He said, God, we've called people to, to, to fast and we're praying, and we, we turn our eyes to you, God, because we don't know what to do. And so that's, that's my charge, that's my encouragement, that's my call uh, to you this week, that we would be ones who say, we're going we're gonna to pray. We're going to fast. I, don't, I thought I had problems. I don't have problems. I thought I had issues, things that were rough in my life found out I was reminded this week that I really, my problems aren't that big. And so I just want to encourage you to, to pray and fast, and I'm going to pray right now. God, we don't know the words to say. We don't know the, the pain that so many are, are walking through. Those that know you, those that don't know you, those that are, that are the, in the wrong place, the wrong gender, uh, yeah, they, they find themselves um, suffering today or fearing for their lives. God, there are uh, U.S. citizens, there's, there's missionaries, there's uh, so many that are, that are facing um, what they, they believe to be certain death. And God, God, we just pray for your strength. God, we, we know that as believers we have the, the hope of, of eternity. Uh, God, we pray for those that, that don't know you. God, we pray for the, the church that is, has been underground and is uh, is still underground, God, that, that they would be able to um, 
continue to rise up and continue to grow and even under this persecution. I love what uh, one of the early church fathers said, the, 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 the blood of the saints is the seed of the church and, and you grow in the, in the most unlikely circumstances. So God, we ask that your kingdom would be established and your kingdom would grow in Afghanistan. God, we pray that you would comfort those who are in fear. God, you would comfort those who are mourning. God, you would, you would strengthen them by your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, I just want to recap a little bit of what, of what we're at in, in 1 John so far. And I think it's... Um, it's appropriate that we're, we're in a section of, of, of 1 John in chapter 2 where it's, it's talking about uh, loving our brothers, loving those around us, and what that looks like, who that looks like. And in fact, he, he gets to the, the place where he says, and if you say you love God and you don't love your brother, then you're, you're a liar. You're still deceived. You're still in darkness. There's no light in you. But what we saw in, as he opens the book in, in chapter 1 is that he, he wants us to know a couple of things. That God is good. That God is light. He's pure. There's no darkness in him. And that, that God, that good God, is knowable. You can know him and you can have... He would take the, the words of these, these Gnostics, these false teachers that he's writing the letter to correct. He would say, you can have fellowship. Right? That was their word and he's taking it. They said fellowship. They're going to have this special relationship, this special connection to the Lord. And he's saying, no, that's, that's free. That's available to everyone. And it's through the person and work of Jesus. And that's the one, one that they were trying to uh, negate. They were trying to lessen that, that Jesus didn't, he wasn't essential. The life and person and work of Jesus, his blood being shed, that, that didn't matter. Like we had that, spur, that, that fellowship, that special relationship with God. We, don't, we didn't, don't need Jesus. And so John is, is saying, no, God is good. God is holy. God is pure. There's no darkness in him. And we can know him. We can have fellowship with him. We can have relationship with him. And it's only through the person and work of Jesus. So then the question that he begins to answer in chapter 2 is how? How can we know that we know him. How do we know that we know him? And chapter 2 gives us a couple tests, a couple ways in which to know that you know. Right? The, the, the first one, uh, Joe did a great job last week, and it was, it was this obedience test, this moral test, that if you keep the commandments in verse, verse 3, it says, and, and by this we know that we have come to know him. We know that we know if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Right, and then in verse 6, how do you know? Your life should look more like Jesus. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So it was his test of how do you know that you know? Are you obeying his commandments? Because John would say, I'm writing these things to you that you might not sin. But even if you do sin, we have this advocate, which is Jesus. The essential is Jesus. So this week's test, this week's how do you know, is this social test. How do you know? Is, is how, how are you loving? How are you loving others? So this week's text is, is verse, starting in verse 7 of chapter 2 in 1 John. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment. But an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment. 
you're confused, we'll get to it, because um, it's old and it's new, and it's the old new thing, it's the, the new thing that's, that used to be old, but now it's, now it's new. So I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So remember the context is he's, he's addressing these false teachers and he's writing to these churches that he's overseeing to address these, these Gnostics. And they would say that they, had, they were enlightened. They were in the light, that they had this special revelation, this special secret knowledge, this, this relationship with God. And John's saying, no, no, everyone can know him. They're, they're saying that they would, they would deny, like we said, the, the person and work of Jesus. And John is saying, no, Jesus, Jesus is essential. And so last week we looked at, and Joe did, he really did a phenomenal job. One of the best explanations of uh, propitiation, I said it right, Ooh. I don't know if you've tried to say that a couple times, and then you're thinking, oh, I'm going to say this with a mic. Okay, so propitiation. I did it again. Ah, yes. So Joe did a great job, and I think he, he said it well last week as well. So propitiation, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Right? And what does that mean? He fulfilled every obligation in our place, on our behalf. That's propitiation. That he did everything that we could not do and everything that we should do. Right? The Father would say it. And he would do it. The father would say, don't do it. And he wouldn't do it. And it's because of the righteousness of Christ. It's because of his righteousness that we now have access to the father. We have that relationship that is open to all, not just the ones who have special enlightenment that is available to everyone. The captive has been liberated. You and I have been set free from the bondage of sin as we put our faith and trust in Jesus. So right now, if you're in Christ, the Bible says that you are a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the, the new has come. Joe did this illustration of, of taking his uh, preacher rag. Is that right? Preacher rag? And he opened up his, his Bible, and he, he puts the preacher rag in, in the Bible, and he closes it. And he says, now, if I take this Bible and I throw it to the front row, what's true of the Bible becomes true of that rag. It goes where the Bible goes. That, and... That's true of us. We are, it, it, Colossians 3 says it like this, your life and my life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's this perfect picture of when Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees that your debt has been paid in full. He sees not your righteousness, he sees Christ's righteousness. And so our life is now hidden, wrapped up in Christ. It's hidden with Christ in God. So that's why you're acceptable. That's why you can approach him with a freedom and a confidence. That's why we can go into his presence. That's why we can gather and worship. And we don't have to go to a special temple or a special place to meet God because God is living on the inside of us. It says that we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. And so we have, we are righteous because Jesus is righteous. You have access to the Father. We lost that access because of what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, and now we have access because Jesus reclaimed that. So from the beginning, there was this type. I've really began in the last couple of years to read the Bible as a story. And in Genesis 2, there is this type or this model that is kind of set forth on how we were to approach 
the presence of God. So when, when he separates the, the, the dry ground from the waters, and he says, uh, there, there's three different locations. He says, in the east, so there's dry ground, and in, the dry ground, there's in the east, there was Eden, or God's, literally, Eden means delight. So in the east is another location called Eden, and in Eden, he plants a garden. Because I used to read that, like, the whole, the whole world, like, God creates the world, and the whole world is this garden, this is beautiful paradise. But that's not what the, the scripture actually says. It was a, a little mind-blowing for me when I, when I, when I grabbed on, a hold of this, that, no, it was in the east, in Eden, there's a garden. It's like indicator in the West End. There's a garden. There's three different locations. And why is that important? Because it was in the garden where God would walk with them in the breeze or in the wind of the cool of the day. That's where God would meet them. And he wants them to, to take that garden, that paradise, and, and be fruitful and multiply, and that, that it would take over the whole world. But instead, they're kicked out of that garden. They're removed from the presence of God. And what is placed there to keep them from going back? This cherubim is placed there with a flaming sword, so they're unable to enter God's presence. Okay, so just remember a few of those details. Kicked out of the presence of God, there's a cherubim that is guarding them from entering back into the presence of God. Where would we see this again? Remember, in the garden was that that tree of of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it's where God would meet them in the cool of the day. But they sinned, and they're they're no longer able to enter the, the presence of God. That relationship, that fellowship that they had with God was broken. So they're removed, and the cherubim are put in place. So let's fast forward to... To Moses, Moses in Exodus, God calls the people up to this mountain, right? Joe talked about this last week, and it's terrifying. It's wrapped in smoke. There's thunders. There's lightning. It's the, the, you're hearing loud trumpets. It's shaking. And that's, the presence of God is descended on this mountain, and God wants them all to come up. And instead, they're like, ooh, no, no. Well, I'm good. I'm, I'm straight. Like, how about this? How about Moses, you go into the fiery, shaking, lightning, mountain thing, and you hear from God, and you come back, and you tell us, you tell us what he says, and we'll do it. And so Moses goes, and, and what happens is Moses then gets the law. And so where God wanted relationship, they got the law. Where God wanted everyone to come up to, to his presence, they're still withheld. And what he gets on that mountain is this, this type, this way, this model on how to approach the presence of God. And it comes with all these rules. It comes with all these stipulations. And it comes with all these things where you, what you have to do to, to be ceremonially clean. But it's this blueprint. And it's, it's for this tabernacle or this tent where they will meet with God. And in that tent or in that tabernacle... There's three sections. There's the outer court. There's the inner court. And then within that inner court is a smaller room that's called the Holy of Holies. So there's the outer place. There's the inner place, which is the holy place. And then within the the holy place is the Holy of Holies. So there's three different locations approaching the presence of God. And what separated the inner court, the holy place, from the holy of holies was this thick veil or this thick curtain. 
It's 15 feet tall, and it's thick, and it's interwoven. And what is embroidered on that veil? Cherubim. Cherubim are embroidered on that veil, guarding the presence of God. Because behind that veil, the Holy of Holies, was where the presence of God would, would be represented in the Ark of the Covenant. Anybody, Raiders of Lost Ark fans, anybody? Right? Like you've got the, even on there you have the cherubim on the, the, the ark on top of the, the mercy seat. And, and so it's the cherubim, again, that are guarding, representing the, the garden that they're kept from the presence of God. So part of these, these um, blueprints are, is, is a type on how to approach the God, God's presence. And only one man, the high priest, would go into this windowless room and burn incense and offer the blood of sacrifice. And they would tie a rope around his ankles because if, he, you know, if he'd not done something right, he's going to die in God's presence and they got to have some way to, to get him out. Right? So this is how they would approach him. And in Hebrews 9, chapter, 7, or chapter 9, verse 7, it says this, But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that once, only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So there's that thick woven veil that divided that room and it had those, those figures of, of the cherubim woven in, protecting, guarding the presence of God. Kind of sounds a little bit like the garden when the cherubim were placed to prevent them from coming back into the presence of God. And this was this, this portable tent. It was, it was not a permanent location. It would travel with them. So fast forward to Solomon. Solomon sets up this ornate tabernacle, this ornate temple, and he, he gets these two huge Statues of cherubim, right? Their, their wingspan is, is 15 feet. And they're standing on either side of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And their wings are touching in the middle. And their wing, other wing is touching the, the other wall. And it, it is this picture of this being, the, the presence of God being guarded by these cherubim. And then on the walls are engraved palm trees and open flowers. It's this picture of this return to Eden. This return to delight, this return to the presence of God that is being guarded and that can only be entered by one man who does the right things once a year to offer the sacrifice for the sins of the people. But it's just a copy. It's just a representation of the true way to enter God's presence. So Hebrews, again in chapter 9, verse 24, says this, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us, in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we have access because of Jesus through the person and work of Jesus. We know that that scripture, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him has access. Whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. Whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have access again to the tree of life, have access again to God's presence. It's through Jesus. But let's look at at the the life and the ministry of Jesus. Because everything that was given to Moses on the mountain when the people chose the law. They chose the law as opposed to that relationship. It, it all drew a hard line, right? Between the things that were clean and the things that were holy, 
that you needed to do to enter the presence of God and the things that were unclean and unacceptable. But Jesus comes along. And, and I believe that the lame couldn't participate in temple worship. That's just what I, I come to know. Then I, I, I actually was studying this week, and I found out I was, I was wrong. Nowhere does it say that those who were lame, those who were, who were blind, those who were disfigured couldn't participate in temple worship. The only, the only thing they said was if you were a priest... If you were of the tribe of Levi and, and the descendant of Aaron, you could not perform the temple worship. You could still eat the holy bread and, and eat the, the, the meat that was sacrificed, but you, you couldn't do the, the work of the priest. But there was nothing about the people not being able to participate in temple worship because of, of their maladies. But that's what it had become. So if we, the very thing that was designed as, as a way to approach God, it, it's been weaponized and it's been distorted and it's been added to. And we want to look at the, the life of Jesus with that lens. Because who does he go to? When we look at the life of Jesus, who does he minister to? Every time, who, who are the miracles received by? He goes to the blind and he gives them sight. He goes to the leper and he touches them, and he heals them. He goes to the, the, the women, and they're even some of his closest followers. These were all ones that were prevented in Jesus' day. Because by the time of Jesus, it was now not Solomon's temple, but it was, it was Herod's temple. And in Herod's temple, there was extra outer courts. There's the, the court of, of Gentiles and the court of, of women. And they even had this inscription that was emblazoned upon it. Uh, if you enter past this, this place and you die, it's, it's on your head. Right? The blame is on you. It was all about who couldn't participate, who couldn't approach God. And so Jesus comes and he touches the lame. He touches the guy with the withered hand. He heals him. Right? He, he goes to the Samaritan, and he goes to the Gentile. He goes to the demon-possessed. He goes to the marginalized, and he goes to the unloved, and he goes to the untouchable, and that's who he ministers to, and that's who receives the miracles of Jesus. When he touched the lepers, it was supposed to make him unclean, and instead, he healed them, and he made them clean. So these second-class citizens... These ones that, that weren't able to participate in the, in the temple worship because of, of how they had uh, continually moved away from even what was given to them on the mountain with Moses. That's the ones. He goes to tax collectors who were seen as worse than sinners. And yes, he goes to the sinners. He went to the Gentile demoniac and, and totally uh, set him free to go back to his city and and. Talk about the, the freedom that he, he had received. The woman caught in the act of adultery. It goes on and on. The Samaritans and the Gentiles were seen as dogs and they were to be avoided at all costs. And that's where Jesus goes. They weren't even supposed to walk through Samaria and that's where he takes his followers. We're going to take this route. Each one of them outcasts and each one of them is the one that Jesus touched, the one that Jesus loves. And that makes the story of the Good Samaritan even more radical right here's this guy who comes this religious guy that comes to jesus and he wants to know what he must do 
to inherit eternal life. And Jesus tells him to love the Lord your God and to, to love your neighbor. And then he, he re- has a follow-up question. Well, who's my neighbor? Who do I really have to love? So Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. And he's like, there's a priest, there's a Levite. It kind of sounds like a bad, starting of a bad joke. <laughs> priest, the Levite, walk into it. Anyway. So he tells him the story about, about this guy that was on the road to Jericho, which was known to, to have robbers. And this guy is robbed. He's, he's, he's beat. He's left for dead. He's, he's naked. And he's laying there on the side of the road. And a, and a priest, a rabbi, walks by. And he sees him, and he goes to the other side of the road to avoid the person in need, the man in need. And he probably couldn't tell because of the way he was beaten, whether he was a Jew, though he probably was, or whether he was a Samaritan. He couldn't tell. But he's like, that's, that's not my deal. And he, he goes to the other side of the road and passes on. He says, then, then what followed him was a Levite, also a very religious uh, in, in the Jewish community. And he passes the same way on the other side of the road and does not come near the guy that's in need, beaten and left for dead. And then Jesus, the very fact that he uttered the name of a Samaritan was a big deal. And Jesus says that the Samaritan is the third guy who passes by. And he comes to him and he restores him. He mends his wounds. And he takes him and he, he, he gives money for his care to, uh, to be had and he... he even after he's healed, he gives him, you know, he wants to make sure if there's anything else, put it on my account. And, he, and then he poses the question back to him. He's like, who in that story would you say is his neighbor? In verse 36 of Luke 10, it says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, he can't even mouth the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. That's, that's the charge to us, that we would go and do likewise, that we would love people, that we would show mercy to people, regardless of who they are, or what they are, or how they identify, or what they look like, or what they smell like, or what they taste. No, we don't taste people. <laughs> Although my son the other night did a pretty good job it's sinking his teeth in, and he's uh, two, my two-year-old son, I should clarify. Um, my 14-year-old's like, I didn't, I didn't do that, it wasn't me. But Jesus touched the untouchable, right? He loves the unlovable, and we're to walk in the same way. So this is, this is Jesus in John 13, 35. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. They're going to know that you're my followers, they're going to know that you're following after me if you love, if you have love for one another. Jesus said they will know if you love one another. That brings us to our text. Verse 7. It wasn't just an intro, it was just a little, little back, back history. So we're, we're almost there. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. You remember Jesus said it. You said a new commandment I give to you that you would love one another. This is how they're going to know that you're my followers. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. 
At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So John's saying, listen, Jesus said it. I have been teaching it and you've been with me and you've heard it. And yet it's new. And that's John 13, 34. A new commandment, this is words of Jesus, I give to you to love one another. See, Jesus had said it. John had taught it. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. It was new when Jesus said it, but they've had it from the beginning of the church. They've had it from the beginning of, of their faith. They've, they've had it. Why are they hearing it as a new commandment? A little over a week ago, I was uh, in Sam's Club. And... I was turning that weird aisle, you know, the one that has like Metamucil and <laughs> vitamins and like if you plan on having headaches for the rest of your life, you can get these, these things that are like huge package, like who, who has that, that, that many headaches? Like you, you don't need Sam's, you need, you need a doctor. And but it's like you, you just need a, a whole pallet of, of Tylenol, I don't know. But that's the aisle. My, my wife had sent me to get, get some bread that's in the corner, and so I've got Arrow, my two-year-old, in the cart, and we've got groceries, and this, is, this will be important in a little bit, that we're, we're backloaded. They were just like right directly underneath Arrow in the, in the back of the cart. And so I take that corner of that weird aisle a little fast, and his eyes sparkle. I don't know, you've got young boys, and you've seen that, oh, I want to go fast. Like that sparkle in their eye, you know? And so he gave me that. And I was like, okay, all right. I was feeling a little spry that day, so I'm going a little bit faster, right? And I'm in flip-flops, and, and, and my feet start to slide along the top, and I'm like, <gasps> so then my eyes spark a little bit, and his are getting big, and mine are getting big. And I'm like, yeah. And I go a little bit faster. Like, I remember doing this. And to make my feet glide a little easier, I, I just put a little bit of weight down. A little bit of weight on that cart. And if, if you have access to that security footage, um, don't share it, but it might go viral. There's a dad fail for sure. And I, and, and I know better, but the cart starts going. It's go, and I'm chasing it. And there's no, there's no recovering. But my son is in the cart. And so that's all I'm, I'm worried about. So I hang on, right? And so I'm just going down with the ship. And I come up, and, you know, it, it's, for me, it's slow motion. It took forever, and everybody saw it, but nobody was there. Nobody, I don't think, at least they didn't look like they saw it. And, you know, they had the phones out. And, but, I, you know, I jerked the cart back up, and I get him out, and, of course, he cries a little bit. And, but there was nothing. He didn't have a bruise. He didn't have a cut. He didn't have a scrape. He didn't have a fat lip. Nothing. I hurt for days. I, that's not a new lesson. That's not a new commandment for me. I know not to do that. But I learned that day that it was a new commandment for me. Don't throw 290 business pounds on the cart with your son in it. It's not going to hold you. Not with your Sam's load in there. So they're learning this old commandment that is now new. Right? <laughs> Later that evening, I was telling a, uh, a friend, and he said, uh, oh, I, I did that when 
my son was about two years old, and same thing, eyes lit up, and I run in it, hit a crack in the, in the parking lot, and the wham, slid, slammed down, and my, my son's face hit the concrete, and it fractured his skull, and he was, I was like, oh, that could have went really bad, because before it was just like, man, I was dumb. I got some, some bumps and scrapes and bruises, but after he said that, I was like, oh, it was really dumb. Right? So, so it's a new commandment, a new commandment. And John, he, he does this, this great job of saying, this is, this is an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. And yet, and yet it's new. Because people are believing these false teachers, that you don't have to love your brother, that you don't have to love people. That it's only about the spiritual, and it's only about your relationship with, with God. It's only about that fellowship that you have with him. It's not about people, so you don't, have to, you don't have to love people. People are not important. Flesh is not important. So John is writing to them, and he, he's telling the false teachers, listen, he uses light here. He said fellowship, or that light, they believe that they're enlightened and that they have this special knowledge, this special relationship with God, but they're still in darkness. They're still deceived. John says, if you hate your brother, you are still in darkness and it has blinded you. Verse 9 Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and he does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Jesus loved when it was hard. He was counterculture in his love. His love for others, it wasn't defined by the religion of the day. It wasn't defined by the culture of the day. He pushed through all those barriers, and he loved people. He saw them where they were. He went to where they were, and he loved them. He didn't affirm. I remember when he, he, he comes to the, the, they bring to him the, the, the woman that was caught in the, in the act of adultery. There's no more color given to that. It's just... I don't know what they're doing, but they caught her in the act of, of adultery and they, and they bring stones like they're, they're ready for a killing because that's what the law says. And they bring her to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus tells them, uh, you who have no sin, be the first to, to cast the stone. And starting from the, the oldest to the youngest, they all drop their, their rocks and walk away. And Jesus says to the woman, you, you go and, and, and sin no more. Right? So he's not affirming the sin, but he's loving the person. We're called to love people. We don't have to agree with who they are, what they are, what they're doing, or what they think. But we're called to love them. Please, in this day, in this age, in this culture that we're living in, be countercultural. Be counter what religion would say what Christianity has become and follow Jesus love like Jesus loved look at his life in ministry he loved the unlovable he touched the untouchable and he wasn't guided by the rules of the day it's because of Jesus that we have access it's because of Jesus that we're able to worship. It's because of Jesus that we're able to approach the presence of God with that freedom 
and that confidence that it talks about in Hebrews. It's because of the person and the work of Jesus. Think of what John writes to the church in this letter, covering the, the whole book of, of, of 1 John. He says, I'm writing to you that your joy may be full. I'm writing to you that you may not sin. I'm writing to you that you wouldn't be deceived by these false teachers. And I'm writing to you that you would have assurance of your faith in Jesus Christ, that it's through Jesus. But what's the how? The how is that we would obey his commandments. The how is that we would walk like Jesus walked. The how is that we would love like Jesus loved. See, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. Because before, if you remember in his Sermon on the Mount, he talked about loving others as yourself. And here he gives a new commandment. He said, love others as I have loved you. We're supposed to look at the example of Jesus and love like he loved. Do the things that the Father is calling us to do. Don't do the things that the Father is saying, don't do. Love like Jesus loved. Live like Jesus lived. It's because of that that we can boldly approach his throne of grace with a freedom and a confidence. You know what's interesting about that veil that was thick and that had those cherubim embroidered into it, showing that the presence of God was being guarded and you cannot pass? When Jesus breathed his last, he said, it is finished. The earth shook and that veil was ripped from top to bottom. It's open, it's free, it's available to all. Would you stand with me as we worship this morning? God, we recognize your presence. God, we recognize our ability to come before you and worship. We recognize that you made a way for us. God, you opened the door, you ripped the veil, and we have access to the Father because of you. We have the hope and assurance of eternal life because of your work on the cross. God, we honor you. We worship you. We praise you. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you. 